wonderful opportunity in terms of time for practice. And I thought of what intention I would like to, uh, uh, if I could think of an intention that I would make for all of us collectively. And uh, what I intended, what I hoped, what I wished would happen, is that we would all of us be able to pay attention in such a way that what we most needed to learn, we would learn, and what we most needed to see, we would see, and that we'd find what we were looking for. I thought, as I uh, thought about what to talk about tonight, I thought about what would be good to say in the beginning of a retreat uh, that would remind us of our inspiration, of why we've come. I looked in the uh, interview sheets, because we'll begin with interviews tomorrow, and I was so impressed with the amount of uh, practice that people have done. Some people are relatively new to practice, but by and large, people have done quite a lot of practice. Don't feel worried if you're one of those people who have not. You've come to the right place. But I, I was so impressed with how much practice so many people have done. They've gotten to the place where some people methodically write down every retreat uh, on the, in the space where it says, uh, list previous retreats. Some people write very small so they can fit them all in. And some people write numerous and then they're on to the next. That's it. And I know them. And we've been in this practice together for all this, these years. So I know we're all doing numerous. <laughs> and we will do these forever. So in a certain sense, it's just to check in with each other. We are all going to do this for the long haul. So it doesn't matter if you have a few or moderate or numerous. It's just joining the group of folks who are going to spend... I think, at least for myself, the rest of my life, trying to wake up and stay up. One of the things that I've come to be quite content with uh, since I began my practice is that there isn't an end to it, and that's okay. It isn't, uh, I think I imagined, perhaps, who knows what I imagined when I started. I actually didn't have the clearest intention in the world, and the 70s when people were beginning to meditate uh, it was the groovy and hip thing to do and I, I think I did not start with what we call clarity of intention but um, if I had any sort of thoughts about where I was going we talked a lot about becoming enlightened like it hap- would happen once and for all after that we would coast and um, turns out to be at least not true for me, and I, I think my friends would mostly join me in that. We're all convinced, all of us, you and us, all of us, that things have gotten clearer. And I think we're also all convinced that we have to keep practicing for them to stay clear. So I wanted to talk about paying attention. The expression came to my mind as I was thinking about talking Uh, about the fact that each of us come hoping to find something, hoping to find the key to 
healing a certain part of our heart or a key towards working with our fears or a key towards whatever it is. So it's as if we come and we say to ourselves, okay, I'm going to Spirit Rock for three weeks or for six weeks. And as if we say to ourselves, be on the lookout for. Do you ever have somebody say that to you? Be on the lookout for. Like it's out there somewhere. Usually we say it about a thing. I can't find my gloves. Be on the lookout for my gloves. I, I really think it's a good idea to be on the lookout for what will help us stay unconfused. I think it's the piece that's the investigative faculty of mind that's alert to what's happening, that we'll come here, all of us, and practice, and we'll practice perhaps diligently. And I think what I wanted to particularly put into the mix of practice instructions today was that movement of the mind that says, be on the lookout for. Um, I remember Suzuki Roshi used to say, uh, keep that beginner's mind that when we first come to practice, this is especially probably relevant because so many people here have been doing a lot of practice. When we came the first time, we thought, oh, might happen now. We all sat down and we listened to the instructions really carefully and we tried and we really stayed awake and tried to do it. And then for a day or a week or a weekend or however long, for an hour, and afterwards, we felt good. We were interested enough to continue. But probably, for many of us, after that first initial hit, we decided, well, it isn't going to clear up all the confusion once and for all forever, that one hit, but it's good for me, so I'll keep on doing it. And the piece that gets lost sometimes when that happens is the piece that thinks, oh, it could happen right now. And I'd kind of like to put that back in about it could happen right now. Because I believe that it could. I believe that the kinds of things that we want to see, that we want to be on the lookout for, are really right there. They're not hidden. We don't have to wait until the right circumstances to be in the place where the awareness of impermanence will arise or where an understanding of suffering will arise or just in the right place where at that time the interconnectedness of all form and non-form will arise. It's always all there. What needs to arise to meet it is awakened kind of attention. We have to be looking for it. I, I, I've been very interested in those... Uh, 3D pictures that uh, you look at and it doesn't look like anything at all. Have you seen them? They're kind of stereopticons, I think they're called. Or You look at them and it looks like dots and squiggles and dots and squiggles, but you know that they're somehow 3D and the instructions say, put them, uh, put them about six inches from your eyes and then move it towards and away and towards and away and keep your eyes focused on it. And suddenly, if you really keep doing it, the picture in 3D will leap out at you. Have you done that ever? They're quite amazing. And what's really amazing to me is how hard it is to see it. And the person next to you will be seeing it all the time. And once you see it, you can't miss it. And I stand there with it, and I move it forward and back and forward and back. And I say, I can't see it. 
My husband says, it's right there, so just look at it. See, see, it's there. Three rabbits sitting on a haystack or whatever it is. And in, out, in, out. And of course, it's very distressing because he sees those three rabbits on the haystack and I see nothing at all. He says, it's right there. Just see it. And then suddenly, you move it and you look and you look and you look and suddenly you see it. And then you can't not see it. And three rabbits, lo and behold, sitting on a haystack or whatever it is you're looking for. This is the kind of practice where we say, to begin with, these are the kinds of insights that you're looking for. They're all over the place. All you have to do is be on the lookout for them. We set up the circumstances by coming on retreat, and they leap up at us. So you really can't decide to have a revelation or an insight. Today I'm going to have a revelation, I decided. But you can set up the circumstances where it will happen, and you can bring the kind of conditioned uh, enthusiasm, determination, or zeal that causes those revelations, those insights to happen. Sometimes not even... I, I thought a little bit about telling you the story. The story leaped into my mind, and I thought, well, I don't know if this puts me in the right light. Oh, it puts me in a light, but I don't think it's the light I'd like to put myself in, but... This might not be so correct to say, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'll take a chance with this. A friend of mine um, told me that she had been very interested. She'd had an interview with a psychic, and um, the psychic uh, told her that she had a spirit guide. Well, that's okay. I'm all right with that. Um, and that the spirit guide would make her presence known by um, leaving pennies in the street for her, and she'd find these pennies, and that she'd know that the spirit guide was there. <laughs> and this is what's not so PC for me to say, because maybe spirit guides is you, maybe you're very attached to them, maybe you feel good about them. I don't feel not good about them. I just have a kind of a feeling that I hope I have a spirit guide, but I hope it's busy taking care of me, not leaving pennies. <laughs> uh, uh, and then I start to think, where do they have pockets for the pennies? And I, I... So at any rate, the reason I tell you that story is because I so was sort of irritable with the story of my otherwise, I think, wise friend, now entranced with the pennies that she was finding every day, <coughs> that I started to find pennies all over the place every day. Because it was my sense that there are pennies all over the place. People drop pennies. They don't bother to pick them up. And that if you're on the lookout for pennies, they'll be all over the place. And so I started to find pennies all over the place. And I don't think they're from anyone dropping Well, they're from people dropping them, but not in a supernatural way. They're from people dropping them, not picking them up. And now I am determined to find twice as many pennies as my friend who thinks she's gotten them in this other way. Now... That's what I have to tell you about myself. It's not my best, most wonderful, tolerant, open-minded space. But there you go. I did it. But the point of the story, I think, it makes a point about I was on the lookout for pennies. I am convinced that there are pennies. Next time you go get gas in a gas station, <laughs> you see people take their change, take something out of their pocket, they drop pennies, they leave them. Look on the way out of supermarkets. There are pennies all over the place. There is impermanence all over the place. 
there is also emptiness all over the place and the truth of suffering and freedom of suffering all over the place every single minute. If you start out and say, I'm going to see it, you cannot not see it. It is all over the place. It has to do, actually, with knowing what we're looking for and then really setting up the conditions. And the condition for seeing is the condition of paying attention. I had a <clears throat> really wonderful interchange with my eldest grandson not so long ago. Uh, Colin is 11. And uh, I had been away on a teaching trip for several weeks and I was home. And he was spending some time with me and uh, we're making conversation back and forth. And he said, uh, where were you, Grandma? And what were you doing? Now, actually, he knows that when I go away, I teach. And he actually, so I said, and, and I said I was teaching. And he said, what were you teaching? And he actually knows what I teach. Frequently comes with me when I give a talk somewhere. So I thought about it. He's expecting me to say I was teaching meditation. And because he sometimes has teased me, and it's in the nature of 11-year-old boys to tease, I thought if I say I was teaching meditation, there's a fair chance that he might sit down in a full lotus with his hands out at his knees and say, mmm, or something like that. So he said, what were you doing, Grandma? What were you teaching? And I said, "Um, I was teaching paying attention. And that really surprised him, caught him. And he said, really? He said, I thought grown-ups knew how to pay attention. <laughs> now, that's, that's really not the important part of the story because the reason he really asked is that he has a little bit of a trouble paying attention in school. It's hard for him to keep his mind focused. It's one of his learning challenges. So he said, um, could you teach me how to pay attention? He said, because sometimes I don't pay attention. He said... But you know what's my problem, Grandma? I don't know when I'm not paying attention that I'm not paying attention. How do you know when you're not paying attention that you're not paying attention? Now that's a really important question because we don't know how confused we are, how caught up we are, how much stuff is going on. We kind of think it's normal, our life. We do lots of things at the same time. We're amazingly proficient at carrying on quite complicated lives and actually executing complicated maneuvers, operating heavy equipment on freeways, and having lots of confusion in the mind all the time. It's quite amazing that we don't cause more destruction than we do. How do we even get the sense that there's something to look for, that there's a way of being less confused, that there's a way of being clearer, and that that way of being clearer will be happier, that in that clarity we'll make wiser judgments, we'll struggle less, we'll suffer less, we'll be happier, the people around us will be happier. How do we even catch on to that idea I've been teaching the ox herding pictures on Wednesday morning in uh, um, the lower meditation hall. And I like to do that series about once a year at least. It's a classic Zen text about waking up. And one of the beginning pictures in these ten pictures 
which are um, kind of a metaphor for the spiritual journey, is discovering that there's an ox that you need to, having the idea there's an ox that I need to catch and tame and bring home. And then the ox herding pictures go through thinking of the ox, imagining the ox, looking for the ox, finding the ox, catching the ox, taking it home, taming it, and then discovering that it was there all the time and that it was actually your own true nature, the possibility of clarity of mind and heart. But you first have to have the sense that there's something to look for even before you look. Even before the journey begins, the journey will end by finding that it was here all along and we didn't know it. But the journey begins by some sense of, uh uh-oh, there's a way I could be that would be more desirable than the way I am. When I teach that um, in a group that can have conversations with each other, and here we've taken a vow of silence so we won't do it, I say, think for a minute about the time that, or times, early times, that you can remember thinking to yourself, hmm, there's something I need. There's something I need in the way of spiritual clarity. Something that I'm missing. Not everybody thinks about that, you know, in a life. Sometimes I say to people, what do you think would happen if you were sitting on a muni bus and uh, turned to the person next to you and said, I'd be really interested in what you're doing in the way of a practice that will wake up your mind to clarity. How many people would get that if you said to the person next to you on the bus? Or whether they'd get up and change seats and sort of worry about you. I mean, we all spend our time with people who get that. A friend of mine told a story recently about his first awareness of, "Uh uh-oh, I better do something. He said I could tell his story. Um, He's my friend Alan Liu. He lives in San Francisco and teaches there. He said, um, uh, well, we would know what year it was because it was was the year that uh, Martin Luther King was to give a speech uh, in Washington. And um, the speech later went out in history as a very famous speech. And Alan told this on uh, Martin Luther King Day this year, so I just heard it from him. He was a student at that time, and he said um, he decided to go to Washington for the day from New York. And uh, many of his friends said, uh, don't go, there's all kinds of forecasts about there's going to be clashes and there's going to be groups and there's going to be all kinds of um, um, difficult things happening there. Better not go. But he went anyway, went by himself. And he said it was quite the opposite, that uh, the groups that people forecast would come out and be troublesome didn't come out. So it was a beautiful day in Washington. And they were going to walk, I think, from the, from the Lincoln Memorial to the Jefferson Memorial, or the other way, I'm not sure. But the whole group, thousands and thousands of people, busloads and busloads, many, many people came from all over the place. 
and he said the spirit was wonderfully high and everyone who was singing and making speeches in those wonderful, exciting um, days was there. He said Joan Baez was playing, everybody was playing, everybody was singing. The mood was wonderful. He uh, had planned to go to uh, to, uh, Philadelphia that night because some friends of his had said, please come to my family in Philadelphia, I'd like you to meet my family. But it was morning, so he thought, well, this is going to happen, and then I'll go to Philadelphia. He was in the best mood, and uh, he well, the march began. He began to walk with a man who seemed a pleasant enough man, and they talked, and they were very friendly, and uh, got down to uh, the end of the walk. It took much longer than they imagined, so the day was passing. And he could see Martin Luther King. He said, I was within 100 yards of him. And uh, then he looked at his watch, and he saw that the day had really passed by. It had taken so long that it was late in the afternoon. And he said, I suddenly had the thought, I'm going to be late for Philadelphia. And that suddenly that thought took hold in his mind, and it became an imperative. I'm going to be late for Philadelphia. He said, I felt tense. He said, then I looked at the person next to me, and I thought, I don't know this man at all wonder who he really is and why is he being so friendly with me also out of the blue kind of an outrageous thought probably triggered by his nervous thought a minute before about I'm going to be late for Philadelphia he said suddenly I was filled with anxiety I left I got in my car I zoomed away I was on the freeway 15 minutes later and I turned on my radio and I heard I have a dream He said, I missed the speech of the decade. I was a hundred yards from Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream. And I was on my way to Philadelphia to have dinner with my friend's parents that I could have done any other time. He said, I realized at that time that I had been entirely moved by confusion in the mind that I hadn't seen. I'd been fine. I'd been happy. I'd been at an epochal event. And now the apocal event happened. It's just as well, he said, I'm happy that the apocal event happened. He said, but I would like to have the able to tell my grandchildren that I stood there and I saw Martin Luther King say that. Not while Martin Luther King said that. I was in a frightened mind state driving down the freeway to have dinner with some people in Philadelphia. He said, I got the feeling that I should pay more attention to my mind and the way it became confused, and the way I didn't notice that it was confused. And then it was my chance to tell a story about how did you notice Sylvia, that there was some work that you might sometimes do. There are so many stories about how I might have noticed about how there was some work that I should do. One that um, I used to tell a lot, I don't know if this is the paradigmatic event, But it's one that might be, because I remember it so well. I was having a holiday with my husband in uh, Mexico and um, staying in a hotel in Guaymas on uh, Baja, California. And uh, we would go sail every day. um, And the sailing harbor was um, off the beach next to a trailer park. 
and uh, there was a community of people living in little caravans in that trailer park. We were staying in this enormous edifice of a cement hotel, and uh, here are all these people in these little, quite fragile trailers. And uh, I made friends with a woman who was living in one of these little caravans, and uh, she was living there by herself, and she said her husband um, had a flight school in Los Angeles. And she said, I don't like to stay in Los Angeles in the summer, so I come down here and live here on the beach. She had two babies with her. One was four and one was six months old. She's living on the beach in this little caravan uh, in quite a deserted strip of uh, Baja California shoreline, having a happy summer with these two children there. And her husband flew down every weekend, she told me, in a little plane. Now, if you know me at all, you probably know that my principal hindrance used to be fretting mind, and that's a situation that, for me, was filled with potential fret material. She's living alone with two young children on a beach, fairly desolate, far from places where you can shop, certainly far from town, far from doctors, in the desert sun, with her husband flying back and forth in a little plane every weekend. <laughs> or at least ten things, you know, when you look at a picture and it says, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> at least ten things in that picture that I could, if I chose to, worry about. And I did, actually, worry about them on her behalf, although she did not seem to be worried at all. And one night, in the course of the week that I was there, there was a tremendous rainstorm, we woke up in the middle of the night, tremendous rainstorm. And there isn't often a rain in the summer, it's desert there. And but it was tremendous thunder and lightning. We opened the curtains and the sky was filled with lightning and thunder and hail and really torrential downpour. And one of the real dangers of desert in torrential downpour is that there's sudden flash flooding. So immediately added to all the other things that were wrong with the trailer park was the possibility of the flash flooding in these caravans and the woman alone with her two children. In the meantime, I'm in this brick edifice. Nothing can happen to me, but I'm worrying about her. So the following morning, the storm is over, and I go immediately to the beach to check out what's happening. And the beach was a mess. Everybody's garden furniture had blown all over the place, and um, people were out sweeping up and cleaning up around. And here was my woman out there sweeping up and cleaning up, looking very relaxed. Two children there happily playing around. And I said, um, how was the storm? And she said, it was great. <laughs> and uh, I said, you have any problem with the children? She said, no, not at all. She said, the baby slept through it. She said, John would have slept through it as well, but I woke him up so he wouldn't miss it. <laughs> that was one of those ox-herding moments where I realized there was a way to be in the world and a mind to have in the world that was different from the mind that I had. That there was a way in which my mind had a grid that processed everything as a potential catastrophe. She had a mind that processed life as an adventure, as a thrill. The truth is that I wanted her mind, not mine. 
The other truth is that you can't change minds with somebody else. You get what you get. What develops as a possibility with the practice of staying awake is you can get to be awake enough to know that those thoughts and that processing machine that makes those thoughts are just part of the equipment that he came with. They're not the truth of the situation. And that if you know that, you can see around them. You can maneuver around them. It's like Dorothy who goes to the Emerald Kingdom. They give her green glasses to put on because the Emerald Kingdom is not really green. And if you put on those green glasses, it looks green. But then if you remember to tell yourself, this is really not green, I have these glasses on, then it's what it is. If I remember, this is not a catastrophe, probably. Probably it's my mind making a fretful thought. Calamities certainly happen, but not nearly as much as I think. Someone said the other day, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Mark Twain, said the most terrible things in my life never happened to me. (laughs) And that really resonates with someone who has that capacity to make that kind of... In a certain way, that fits with a very touching teaching uh, in certainly the fictionalized version, but made out of the true story of the life of the current Dalai Lama. If you saw... Kundun, which is really one of the really great, beautiful films. My favorite scene, I think, in um, that movie, there were two or three really wonderful moments. It's a wonderful moment where the actor playing the child at Dalai Lama is being tutored by his tutors. He's been recognized as the incarnate Lama. He's been taken away and being tutored by tutors. And it looks as if he's perhaps maybe four years old. And uh, he's reciting back to them the Four Noble Truths. And um, he's doing it in kind of a rote way. And so he says the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is craving. And they stop him. And uh, they say to him, not right, they said, too much, not humble enough. And so he stops for a minute. It's very touching to me because he stops for a minute, he thinks it over, and he drops his head down. And I thought maybe the humility or the lack of humility had been in his posture or that he hadn't dropped his head or he hadn't been properly humble in saying such a great and wonderful profound truth in such a kind of a four-year-old straight, blurred-out way. But actually, it turns out, at least for me, what I like to think is that it was a moment of reflection. And having reflected for a moment, he said, he restated the second noble truth as, I am the cause of most of my own suffering by the habits of my own mind. That's a really profound statement. Whether or not as a four-year-old he actually got that, as a grown-up, I actually do get that. I am the cause, most of the suffering in my life, as a result of the habits of my own mind, unchecked, unconscious, unremarked upon. If I see them, then they're just habits of my mind. 
The truth is, in a moment ago when I said you can't change minds, you can't. But you can live with the mind that you have if you're able to stay awake and say, there goes my mind doing its thing again. It's just not true. It's just my mind doing its thing. It's the imprint of the mind for this life. It will do its thing. It gets less and less. As you don't believe it so much, it's less prominent. I'll keep you posted in my experience up to now. It has not completely disappeared. It's not so annoying. It's not so frequent. And I don't believe it nearly as much. And I feel better. I think a very big piece of the work that we do together is watching the habits of the mind, seeing what's true about them. The other very big piece, maybe I can say a little bit about both of them, is seeing what's true, just in general. There are the habits of this mind in this lifetime to really get to see. And then there's what's true. We can see both of them. We can be on the lookout for both of them with the intention of wanting to see really clearly and in a new way. And Eugene pointed to both of them in this morning's instructions where uh, a piece of the instruction had to do with what should you do if you're walking along and paying attention to this footfall and that footfall and the shift of the energy in your body. And suddenly there's a deer right in front of you. And it said we could stop and look at the deer. Really, we could. We could look at the deer because it captivates the attention. And really what we are trying to do here is let our attention rest Deeply, with each experience, there is truth to be known in each experience. If you stop and you look at the deer, it will be whatever it is. It will be the perception of the deer or the amazement that deer is so close or all the feelings that you have about it or how extraordinary an animal it looks like. If you stand long enough and look at the deer, discover that after a while, either the deer will leave or your interest in the deer will leave. And then you'll continue on. In either event, you will be able to see something about the fact that everything passes. You will not stand there all day and look at the deer, nor will the deer stand there all day. If we come to each experience thinking, I will learn something in this moment, if I deeply pay attention to it, there is something to be seen and learned in everything. There's what is happening and what's true about what's happening. As we encourage you in these first few days to let the attention really rest in the experience of the breath coming and going, it is really both to let the attention rest so that the mind calms down and develops a certain level of composure and balance and equanimity. And the other part of it rest in the coming and going. As it rests, the intention in encouraging you to keep the attention in a very simple focus on the breath, in the footsteps, is that if we have a very limited range of experience to which we incline the mind in terms of object, 
it does build a certain amount of composure and a certain amount of equanimity, a certain amount of balance. As it begins to rest and become more balanced, it's not just resting in breath, it's resting in the awareness of the coming and the going of the breath. There is no moment in which we cannot both see the moment, know the moment, and know the truth of the moment. You look out in the night sky tonight, might know the night sky and the beauty of it and the way your heart lifts up in it. And tomorrow night, it'll have a new moon in it. And it won't have been here today and it will be there tomorrow. And you see that, once again, there's a passage in time. It was daytime today and now it's night. For a long time, this retreat was a mythical event in the future. As it was a mind, it was a thought. And it existed in some mythical future that has arrived. You see how the, the, the sense of things coming and going, we have the sense sometimes about future and, and past, like the future is in front of us and the past is behind us, and we're marching somehow into the future. And there are those moments where we know there isn't any such thing as a future or a past. There's only always now, if we're awake, with things arising in it and passing away and things arising and passing away. And the sense of moving towards a future is one that's constructed in the mind. We get to see how the mind works. It's amazing. It's amazingly interesting. You get to see how you have a thought out of the blue. We never have a thought, have a thought. As a matter of fact, if somebody says, don't have a thought, um, how did they do it? So it's, a, it's a kid's game. You say, for two minutes, you must not have a thought about a pink elephant. And then, of course, you can't think about anything but a pink elephant. You know? um, we, don't, we don't have any control, really, over what arises in the mind. Just to be able to see that the mind is making thoughts all the time, just as the body is making thoughts all the time. It's supposed to make thoughts all the time. And the body, as long as it's viable, makes body sensations all the time. We get to see it's not about having them be a certain way. It's about the relationship that we have to them. And that we can have a wise relationship to our bodies and our minds. Really a wise and compassionate and spacious relationship. So that eventually we can be able to say, this is pleasant, I'm glad it's here. I know it won't be here forever, but as long as it's here, this is wonderful. I'm really enjoying this and appreciating it. This is unpleasant. I'm not enjoying it at all. I'll either see if I can fix it or I'll keep in mind the fact that it won't be here forever. We get to really incrementally, I trust, develop um, a wisdom that becomes visceral. Actually, I think perhaps one of the last things I want to say is that we come to practice because we have gotten the idea somewhere that there's a way to be that's happier, more relaxed, more at ease, more peaceful in life. I think actually now, having mentioned the Dalai Lama and Kundun, that uh, part of the really enormous interest in the West in Buddhism comes from a sense that's really permeated even mainstream culture largely because the Dalai Lama is as well-known as he is, and uh, there are movies and books out, 
in the sense, uh, the, the, the <coughs> particular characteristic that I think he embodies, that I think it evokes in people a response at least of interest, is the possibility of peace in this life. In a life that's inevitably going to be challenged, the possibility of a heart of peace. It's really extraordinary. All of us having embarked on this particular journey of three or six weeks, and for many of us and most of us many, many times done this journey, do it because we have a sense that there's some way to be. We have a sense that there's a path. We really have a certain amount of trust that it works, faith that it works. I think about the time that I came on my first meditation retreat. I was so relieved that the very first Dharma talk was about the pervasiveness of suffering in the mind and the kinds of confusions and tensions in the mind that lead to suffering, that are suffering. I was so happy to have other people put that out straight. was kind of the clue that what I had known for some time, there's a way to be, that I knew I wasn't yet, that here was a path to that way to be, because here it was laid out so clearly. There is a path. As these weeks go by, I'm so excited about the time that we'll have together. I think we'll be able to talk back and forth between how to do the logistics of this practice. We'll have talks that uh, will really refine the dynamics of how to pay attention. We'll talk some about really paying attention to the habits of mind. You will all discover, as I discover all the time, what the habits of mind are, of my mind, that I don't see, that continue to trip me up as long as I don't see them. There's something quite extraordinary about the, the logistics of a retreat. It's like leveling the playing field. There's so little to do here other than pay attention, that it becomes impossible to hide in the best possible way. So the dynamics of the mind get all exposed for us, and we can look at them, and in the looking we are changed. And then there's the possibility of seeing not only the dynamics and the habits of our own mind, but seeing over and over and over again the truth of how things are. I was so touched this morning when Eugene said about uh, himself being touched about and inspired about walking practice because I had said apparently, I, I remember doing it, I've said it I think a lot of times, about my really first clear understanding of the fact that there isn't a permanent self in here 
that there isn't a little Sylvia in there that's looking out of these eyes or hearing from inside these ears. There isn't a permanent anything anywhere, but a continually arising, changing set of conditions. And that that moment of uh, awareness often uh, presents itself as well with an awareness of not only that all of these conditions are connected to each other, but that all conditions are connected to each other. It's a moment of great, awesome awareness about the interconnectedness of all of life. And truly, I could show you where in Yucca Valley there is exactly the spot where putting my foot down at a certain time, there were the necessary and sufficient conditions for me to know that's really true was tremendously important for me. For whatever reasons, it was important and awe-inspiring. It was particularly important for me because when I heard my teachers give a talk about the three particular things we wanted to notice in life, not what was happening, but actually that it's all impermanent, that suffering is the uh, reflection of clinging, and that there's nothing really separate ever, anywhere. I uh, thought they were right on the first two and wrong on the third. And uh, I thought they'd eventually figure out that they were wrong on the third. And because uh, it seemed so incorrect to me, certainly felt that there was somebody inside. So I was very happy to find they were right. So it was a great occasion. The thing is, All of those truths of how things are are available all the time. They're not only in that spot in Yucca Valley. They are all the time in everything, if we pay attention and if we are on the lookout for them. So I'd like to tell you, I'd like you to be on the lookout for impermanence all the time, everything. You sit down to eat and you you feel really excited about eating because you're hungry. Be on the lookout for when you're not hungry anymore. Then you can say, oh, that was impermanent. I had an appetite, now I don't. It's actually a moment of disappointment because as soon as you don't have an appetite, the food doesn't taste so good because then that's the signal to stop eating. But if you had an appetite still, you could keep on eating and be fun. So it was fun, but now it's not fun. So the fun went away. I mean, all day long, you pay attention. Everything is arising and disappearing every single minute. Your sleepiness is suddenly arising out of nowhere. You're wide awake, sitting, sleepy. Then all of a sudden, you're awake again. All day long, if you got up tomorrow and said, today I'm going to be on the lookout for impermanence, of course I'm not going to do anything but sit and walk and let my attention rest in the breath. But in the back, and then the walking, but in the back of my mind, I'm on the lookout for impermanence. And what's more, I'm on the lookout for the truth of suffering. And I'm on the lookout for truths about interconnectedness. I'm on the lookout for it. Not only on the lookout for it for the next three weeks, I'm on the lookout for the next six weeks and for the rest of my life. Because then I will profoundly and profoundly and profoundly again see how awesome it is. All of this whole magic thing called life. I actually think that one of the biggest pieces of seeing 
is that uh, it lifts up the heart and lets us do this life, which is inevitably challenging and requires of us that we look at it and pay attention to it with all of the difficulties in it. It's actually seeing the truth of it that allows me to look at the difficulties of it. I need both sides. So I'm happy that you're here. Be on the lookout for what? What should we say? You know, when I wrote the name of this title here, I wrote, be on the lookout for, and then I made a big dash, because I don't know what word goes in there. Be on the lookout for freedom, be on the lookout for wisdom, be on the lookout for happiness, be on the lookout for joy. I don't know. How about just be on the lookout? Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.